Section 51 of A Minor War History. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Brandon. A Minor War History by Martin Alonzo Haynes. Letter 139. Yorktown, Virginia, April 11, 1864. Here I am again, only a couple of miles from the spot where we camped two years ago. I have been looking around a little since we arrived here. Yesterday, Hen Everett, Jess Dewey, and I paid a visit to that old camp, and it was intensely interesting to us. The company streets and the ditches around the tents were there almost as we left them, and even much of the litter of the camp. I found the site of my tent and sat down on the very spot where two years ago I used to rest after a night in the trenches and where the letters addressed to Miss Neely T. Lane were written. I picked up one of the old tent pins and intend to make some little souvenir of it, also a piece of shell and a fragment of boiler from the old Magruder sawmill, the music of which was continually in our ears. Perhaps you remember about an old tentmate of mine named Damon. When we were here, he hollowed out an oven in the steep bank of a ravine, and as that was one of the institutions of Company I, we hunted it up. We found it in perfect condition, and as good as new. And as we stood there, Damon was right before my eyes again, bobbing about and learnedly discoursing on the peculiar advantages of ovens built on that particular plan. We are camped just outside the works around Yorktown, on a plateau overlooking the York River, and far off to the east, the blue waters of Chesapeake Bay, on the whole a very pleasant location. The first night we were here we had no tents, but they came the next day, although not as many as we needed, and we are, consequently, somewhat crowded. It was the intention to give Jess Dewey and I a tent together, but we will have to wait. But at the rate our subs are deserting, there will be tents enough, and room enough before long. About a hundred have made tracks so far. Yesterday the 4th U.S. Colored Regiment left here. One of the officers went out of this company. They are going to Point Lookout. The fellow I would have gone to Washington with, if things had not shaped themselves to my liking in the regiment, is back with a captain's commission. You see what I escaped? Colonel Bailey tells me I ought to go up anyway, whether I accept or not. It would help pass the time away. But I tell him I am getting along very comfortably as I am, that I can enjoy myself better with the regiment than I could loafing around Washington, and that if I wanted a commission, I could have had one long, long ago. I am quartering now in the cook tent, and have very good accommodations. It is understood we are going to Williamsburg soon. Hen Pillsbury says Colonel Bailey is determined to go home when the old men do, and most of the officers are of the same mind. We have just drawn rations of cracked peas, beans, rice, smoked sides, etc., so there are no signs of immediate starvation.
End of letter 139. Letter 140. Yorktown, Virginia. April 13, 1864. Not a bit of mail have we had until yesterday, since our arrival here. Then George Colby came down from Point Lookout, bringing what had accumulated there. We are expecting to have a military execution of a deserter this afternoon. He is one of our subs, going under the name of John Egan. He was taken while trying to make his way into the rebel lines, was tried yesterday by court-martial, and condemned to be shot today between the hours of five and six o'clock in the afternoon. He was making for the rebel lines when he met a man in a gray uniform, and he gave himself dead away. He didn't know that a gray uniform between the lines was pretty sure to cover one of our scouts. So he unbosomed himself, and was then about-faced and marched back to Yorktown. Just outside our camp is the grave of a man who was executed a little over a month ago. He was on guard over a prisoner at Williamsburg, whom he allowed to escape, carrying important information to the rebels. Most of the large number who have deserted since we got here have been picked up at one place or another. Their utter ignorance of the geography of the country has in many instances led to their undoing. It is probable that several of them will meet the same fate that has been decreed for Egan. The second of Gordon's precious subs made corporals to spite the old men, made tracks day before yesterday, but was picked up and brought back yesterday. When the bulk of the old men are discharged, and the subs have all run away, and most of the officers have been mustered out, where will the glorious old 2nd Regiment New Hampshire Volunteers be? I am glad I have not got to stay and serve any longer, for it can never again be the same old 2nd except in name. Close to our camp is a contraband settlement familiarly known as Slab City. There are several hundred houses. It is laid out in streets. The shanties, built of slabs, split logs, etc., averaging about half the size of an ordinary New Hampshire woodshed. Jess and I have explored it from one end to the other, and it was as good as a circus. They have quite a corps of teachers, both white and black, and there is more religion to the square inch than in any other part of the United States. There are stores with little stocks of goods that wouldn't inventory $20 apiece, and the signs are fine examples of phonetic spelling. Here is one, Grocery Store, G-R-O-S-E-R-I-S-S-T-O-O-R. -S and on two that we saw appeared the magic word, Grocies, G-R-O-S-E-Y-S. The orthography evidently dictated from the same font of knowledge. The mechanical execution was on par with the spelling. Friday, April 15. This forenoon I witnessed the execution of two deserters from our regiment. One was the John Egan I have spoken of before, who was respited for a day. The other was a man who has gone by the name of Holt, 
but who last night acknowledged that his name was Maguire, and that he was from Yorkshire, England, where he had a wife and two children. The second regiment was drawn up in line facing the execution ground with two loaded cannon in position to rake it. One Negro regiment in line to the rear of the second and another drawn up at right angles on its left. When the troops were in position, the two condemned men rode upon the ground, each seated upon his coffin in the bottom of the wagon. Arriving at the spot where they were to be shot to death, they got down from the wagons. Their coffins were taken out and placed end to end before the open graves. Then the firing squad of twelve men were drawn up about a dozen paces in front of them. They knelt by their coffins while a Catholic priest, who had come up from Fortress Monroe, conducted the appropriate offices of the church. Then they arose. Their handcuffs were taken off, and they removed their coats and vests. Their eyes were bandaged, their wrists tied with white handkerchiefs, and each seated on his coffin. What an awful moment it must have been for them when they heard the click of the gun locks as the executioners cocked their pieces. The next instant they fell back across their coffins, each pierced by five bullets. Holt did not die for several moments and raised his hands a number of times. There are some eighty or ninety deserters under guard downtown, and more will follow in the way these two have gone. George Colby is down here, and is going into a little subtler business on his own hook, as he does not think Mr. Bailey will take the risk and bother of doing business under present conditions. End of Letter 140 Letter 141 Yorktown, Virginia, April 21, 1864 Today is, I believe, the third anniversary of my entrance upon a military life. It is entertaining to hear the old fellows count up the number of days that lie between them and home. The 9th of May appears to be the generally accepted date of release, but I am afraid the wish is father to the thought. The first thing I hear in the morning is something like this. Well, only eighteen days more. Or only eighteen loaves more of army bread for me. Since I wrote last, we have moved our camp about a mile and are now in a delightful location, on a smooth, grassy slope close to the river and near the spot where Egan and Holt were executed. At the right of the camp is the last parallel in which I put in a night's work two years ago. The very tree under which I shoveled so diligently is still standing close by an angle of the trench. I sometimes catch myself imagining the siege is still going on, and when the sunset gun is fired, involuntary duck my head below imaginary earthworks and listen for the rush of the shell. A great army is being gathered here. Troops are pouring in, by regiments and by brigades. Several regiments have arrived from Hilton Head, South Carolina, among them the 4th New Hampshire, I hear the third is expected. 
the negro troops who have been stationed here during the winter are going to fortress monroe and from there i understand to port royal and troops are coming here from norfolk and portsmouth the tenth and thirteenth new hampshire are on the way and will be here today we will soon be ready for another advance on richmond and to tell the truth i rather like the idea of seeing a little more of active service before i go home general smith w f baldy who it is supposed will lead this column of advance on richmond arrived yesterday and was escorted to headquarters with great parade which there were indications was not exactly to his liking he is a western general one of grant's favorites a big rough-looking grizzled old fellow without any frills and i hope will not disappoint expectations it was at first intended to send this regiment to williamsburg but there were so many desertions it was not deemed advisable and we may be kept here but the execution of the two deserters has had a good effect and there has not been a single case of desertion since that time end of section 51 recording by john brandon